As we prepare our hearts for the table, we've been in a series of looking at the characteristics of our Lord as are given in the first several chapters of the book of Revelation to the present churches of that day. And we've learned as we have looked through these that as the Bible says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It means that we are to give our ear exactly to all of these churches and to evaluate ourselves. And as we evaluate ourselves, then we are also given the commandment on how to correct ourselves. And so we're now down until the 6th church, the church at Philadelphia, that's here in Revelation 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now my intent, it really isn't to give an exposition of these passages, but to look at the characteristic of our Lord as it is given here in verse 7. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. These qualities of our Lord have been given to these churches because these are qualities that our Lord Himself points out in His capacity as a judge. It is He who is walking in the midst of the churches. And it is He who is walking in the midst of every New Testament candlestick that is on earth today. He is not only in the midst of those churches, He is in the midst of this church right now. He knows our deeds. He knows the members of this local New Testament body. 
He knows our characteristics, and He knows exactly what we need to be aware of to, as it were, come back to a proper position before His face. In the case of the church at Ephesus, He is the one who holds the seven stars in His right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And is it not true that churches today forget and they're coming together to worship the risen one that we forget that he is in our midst? We just think anything will go and anything will fly and all we have to do is get together and kind of express our feelings and emotions to him and he is pleased. But that is not the case. He is there in our midst and he holds in his hand the seven stars, that is, the messengers of those seven churches. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he tells the church at Smyrna, who is under persecution, he says, I am the first and the last who was dead and has come to what? Come to life. And you think of the encouragement that that would be to a church that is under persecution to this place that some of them had given their lives for the name of Christ. He who was dead but is now alive. And then we begin to get into churches that have more serious eras and difficulties. The church at Pergama, chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, I want you to know that I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And it's this church that through the preaching of the word of the messenger that Christ himself fights with members of that congregation. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That the Lord would do something like that. And so we, if we're in that case, we are to repent. For he is coming quickly, verse 16, and he will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. Then you have the church at Thyatira, different characteristics. Verse 18, he is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. You go into chapter 3 and you have this church that had a name that it was alive, but it was it was dead. And he says to that church, <clears throat> I am the one, chapter 3 verse 1, that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and this is what I say to you. And then we have this church at Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia is mentioned, the Greek term is mentioned several times in our New Testament, and it is usually translated something along these lines, brotherly love. But in this passage, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, it is not used in that capacity. It's actually used as a proper name. And so it's transliterated Philadelphia. And of course, we have a city here in America that's called what? Philadelphia. And if you look it up, it will say it's the city of brotherly love. This is where they are getting that from. But there is something unique about this church that is different from the other six. And what is unique about this church is the description that our Lord gives to them. 
It is a description that is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 1. With the other six churches, the characteristics that are given to those other six churches are all redundant. They are all having been mentioned in Revelation chapter 1. We read that chapter for our scripture reading. But in this case, this description is not mentioned in that. And perhaps why so? Well, we're not sure about why, but we would offer a conjecture. We would say this, that the other thing that is unique about this church is that there is nothing negative given to this church. In Revelation chapter 1, the description of our Lord, He is there as a... As a judge, he's judging what's going on, and these churches had issues and problems. This church, of course, wasn't sinless, but when our Lord looks at this church, his judgment is, well, they don't need the characteristics that I am standing to John in Revelation chapter 1 as a judge they actually need to be strengthened and encouraged. And you'll notice that he talks in verse 8 that the church is weak. It says, you have little power. The word there could refer to, you are insignificant in the light of the culture. Or you are insignificant as far as influence and prominence in the place of the world. They were weak. It could also refer to their numbers that they were not a large congregation, that they were smaller, but in any case, they had little strength and they needed encouragement because of that. Not only did they have little strength, but they had done something that showed they really were strong. It says in verse 10, they had kept the word of my perseverance. What was going on here in this congregation? Well, they were being attacked. And they were being attacked, verse 9, by those of the synagogue of who? Of Satan. What was the characteristic of this synagogue of Satan? Now, now folks, they're... I don't think that there was a synagogue and up above it it had the word Satan. These were a synagogue. It was what ethnicity? It was Jews. And they were being persecuted by those religious people. And if you look at verse 9, he gives the characteristics here. They say they are Jews, but they are... Not. Now, they were Jewish by ethnicity, but they were not Jewish by rebirth. They were not part of the people of God. But they thought they were, what? Part of the people of God. And they were persecuting those who were holding fast to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They were being attacked by these people. And perhaps they had other persecution that was going on, but this is exactly what our Lord mentions here. 
And the result of all that was something very astonishing. Look at verse 8 at the end of that verse. They kept the word of Christ and they did not deny his what? His name, his person, who he is. Who is he? He is holy. You agree with that? He is true. You agree with that? And here's something new to our understanding. He has the key of David. And with that key, he opens a door. And if he opens the door, nothing can shut it. And if he closes the door, nothing can what? Nothing can open it. So you think about this congregation and you think about them holding fast to who he is and a group of people who are publicly, perhaps even physically, assaulting this church and saying, look, you're claiming to be the Messiah's people, but you're not the Messiah's people. We are the Messiah's people. We are the ethnic Jews. We're the ones that have that Mosaic Covenant. And folks, if we were going to make application of that 2,000 years later, I think we could safely say this, that there are those, even within Christianity, who claim to be Christian. But they are what? They are not, and they attack genuine believers, genuine churches. Does that happen today? Well, it does happen today. And if you're here and you've been a believer for any length of time, you probably know what it means to be attacked by friends that all of a sudden, now that you're born again, you find out that they too go to church. You never heard anything about it before, but now you know they go to church and they're religious people. Or they say to you, well, I'm spiritual. It's kind of the buzzword today. Oh, do you know Christ? Well, I'm just a spiritual person. Or there's denominations that attack Bible-believing churches. There's blogs, articles, preaching that goes against the biblical aspects of a New Testament church. These things continue to go on today. And folks, it is wearisome and it can get overbearing, especially when their voices really begin to come to the forefront and that's about all the voices that you ever hear and you begin to wonder, am I really believing the right thing? Am I really holding to the truth? Is this really real? Is this what it's going to be for me to be delivered from my sin, to stand before Him whole because of His work? And Jesus' answer to that is, I'm holy, and I'm the true one. And I have the key to open that door. And I've opened that door to you. And nothing, nothing, nothing can shut that door if I have opened it. Folks, wouldn't that encourage you? 
Wouldn't that encourage you to know, as he says here, that he's going to try the whole world? Look at verse 9. He's going to make those who say that they are Jews and are not. They're lying. I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. He's going to vindicate his people. And folks, we know that one day every knee will bow. Don't we know that? And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But folks, we are in Him. We are one with Him. For the peoples and the nations to bow down to Him means that they will bow down to His worshipers. And in that day, they're going to know something. They're not going to know how much you loved Him. They're going to know how much He has loved you. Isn't that different? Oh, I just want people to know how much I love the Lord. No, what you want people to know is how much He loves you. They will see that. And folks, these people are promised rewards. You'll see that in verse 12. Verse 11 speaks of a crown. Verse 12 talks about being made a pillar in the temple of my God. It mentions that we will not go out from it anymore. He talks about writing on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is now mentioned here in verse 12, having been mentioned in the book of Hebrews, but also at the end of this book, that new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And his new name, note this, and my new name is going to be written on him. Those are great rewards to a congregation that has little strength, isn't it? Folks, I am so glad that our Lord dwells with the humble and the contrite. I am so glad that the Scripture doesn't say that we as a pastor who's laid on top of that one foundation, Jesus Christ, He's not looking for numbers, What he's looking for is the quality of the congregation. Not the quantity. The quality. How mature are we? How much conformed into his image are we? Whether we're running a thousand or a five hundred or a hundred or fifty or five. It's the quality that Christ is looking for. And folks, when you are in this type of position where it feels like all the world is against you, and all the so-called denominations and religions of the world have all kind of yoked up together, and you're very, very small, and you're being persecuted, and the culture is against you, We need to remember three things. Number one, He who 
is holy. There are many definitions that have been given for the word holy. You can talk about it being the radiant, now think about the words, the radiant outshining of the excellencies of God. Holiness does not merely denote sinlessness. He is sinless, is He not? But I think here what He's speaking of is His being set apart as unique. Christ is the unique one. God is the unique one. There's no one like God ever. No one. There is no one like God present or in the future. He is, we can word it this way, one of a kind. No one like Him. And His Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they all are holy. They comprise His being. They too, if we speak of them individually, they too are holy and unique. God the Father is unique. God the Son is unique. God the Holy Spirit is unique. He's not like our spirit. He is one of a kind. But folks, when Jesus Christ became the incarnate Son, when He took on humanity, He was also unique. Was He fully man? A lot of common elements with humanity, right? But in His humanity, He was holy. He was the unique one. No one else like Him. One of a kind. And He walked on this earth. Born as a baby. Matured as a human being, as a man. Gave His life on a cross. He experienced, His body experienced death. But death could not hold Him. Isn't that unique? And He rose from the grave. Some have said that the word holy governs all other attributes of God. His love is unique. Would you agree with that? His peace is beyond understanding. It too is unique. God's goodness is unique. His love is unique. His wrath is unique. His jealousy is unique. And we as finite human beings really try, as believers in whom is the Spirit of God, we really try to wrap our minds around this unique aspect of all that God is.
Moses would write concerning Him, Who is like You, O Lord? Who is like You among the gods? Who is like You, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Samuel would write in his book, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside you, neither is there any rock like our God. Now think about that. You think about God's stability, His no, to quote the King James, no shadow of turning. Unique, isn't it? There's no rock like our God. And even the angelic beings in the prophet Isaiah, when he saw that beautific vision of Christ, one angel crying to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're recognizing the one-of-a-kindness of God. And they are in awe about that uniqueness. Even in the book of Revelation, chapter 15 and verse 4, the beings say, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, because your judgments have been made manifest. Even his judgments are unique, are they not? His knowledge is unique. And what Jesus is saying to this church that has very, very little strength, they're very much a weak church, Jesus is saying to them, look, you have held on to my uniqueness of who I am. In light of a culture, in light of different religions, and even the Jewish religion that has denied who I am, but you have held on to that. Continue to hold on. I am the one who is holy. I am God in human flesh. What an encouragement that would be to receive an inspired epistle from Jesus Christ Himself saying, you're holding on to the right thing. Hold on to it. Secondly, he mentions he who is holy, who is true. You ever heard this phrase, they're the real thing? Jesus is the real thing. He is the genuine one. He's not just saying, look, I am truth, although that is true. He is saying, I am what? I am true. I am the genuine one. This church was under the constant threat of denying that Christ Jesus is the Lord and the genuine Messiah from this synagogue of Satan. Even John would write, listen to his words, and we know that the Son of God is come 
and has given us an understanding that we might know Him who is true. Did you hear that? He's given us this understanding so that we can know Him that is true. And we are in Him. That is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? That here, that church that John is writing to, a church that had been rent asunder by false brethren who had departed from that congregation, having once held on to His name, but now they are denying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the confusion that is going on there in that congregation. And John writes to that congregation, look, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know, and here's what you know, those of you who are holding on to His name, hold on to that name. He's given you an understanding. And you know Him that is true. He is the true one. And you are in Him. That is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the true God. And it is eternal life. Do we hear that this morning? Folks, when we get shaken... It's those types of truth that kind of put our feet back on that rock. The only true rock. Jesus Christ Himself. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, He speaks of this. All throughout this, they mention the, the truality, as it were, of the person of Christ. Revelation 6 and verse 10 <clears throat> It says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and, and true. Everybody see what they're confessing in the light of the culture of that day. You've, you've got everybody against you. Government's against you. The laws are against you. In fact, it's going to come to the point you can't buy or sell unless you take on the mark of the beast, Right? Do you think that the vast numbers of professing believers out there are going to be right there holding on to His name? Or would they give up His name for a meal? Like Esau. Oh, they'll give it up. Because they're not in Him that is true. Folks, how can you deny what is part of you? I've often thought, what would I do? What would I do if somebody put a gun to my head or a sword and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. You must deny Christ. You must deny that you're a Christian. I, and I've sat there and I've thought about it. I've thought, you know, there, there is a part of me that say, okay. Okay. But it's not very strong. But I actually thought to myself, how can I deny what is He is, isn't He? And I'm in Him, and He's in me. How can I deny who I am? I'm a Christian. I think I would just look and say, make it quick. How can you deny He who is holy? 
and He who is true. And folks, you and I, this week and the weeks ahead, you're going to be tempted in little small ways to deny that He is true. You're going to be tempted to be silent. You're going to be tempted in the light of a culture that says, you know what, if you're not going to go along with the culture, you're going to lose your job. I'm telling you from the Scripture and from the mouth of Christ Himself, He is holy and He is true. Hold fast to that. In Revelation chapter 15, not only is He true in His person, He is true in His judgments, and He is true in His words, and He is true in His ways. Folks, if He is true, then everything He does is what? Is true. That's His being. That's His essence. And in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Everybody see that? Folks, we can't understand all the ways of God, can we? He's infinite. We're finite. He knows all. We know very little. But folks, this is what we can know. He's true. And He doesn't have to explain everything to us. Why? Because we know Him who is true. Do you hear that? Children don't have to understand everything that their parents do because they know their, they know their parents, right? There's a comfort in that. Now, thanks be to God, He does explain some things to us, right? Marvelous things, things that we talk about, things that we can take a, a phrase and make it our sermon out of, He shares with us. But folks, all we have to know is who He is. And we can rest in that. Sometimes people will say, well, one day you'll know. Well, one day you still may not know. Would that be okay? Would that be okay for you to stand before He who is holy and He who is true and He who is truth and He whose ways and judgments and paths are always true? If He never explained it to you, would, do you think you would say in your heart, oh, heaven isn't what it meant to be? No, you would rejoice because you know Him who is, who is true. And He is true. In Revelation 16 and verse 7, I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 2, again, Hallelujah, when the judgment on that harlot comes, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. 
He has judged the harlot. In verse 9 of that same chapter, He said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. Folks, is that the true word of God? Everything He says is true because He is true. And all of His judgments are true because He is true. And all of His ways are true because He is true. He is the true one. Not scientist. Not your neighbor. Not the sports star. Not the celebrity. Certainly not Hollywood. And not even you. Folks, can we deceive ourselves? But He's true. And what He has written is true. And that we can hold on to. In Revelation 21, in verse 5, He says again, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Is He going to make everything new? Yes. Because He is true. And lastly, in Revelation 22, in verse 6, He said to me, these words, referring to this whole book, these words are faithful and true. Folks, He is true. And He is holy. Hold fast to that. Hold fast to what He has given that understanding to you. Hold fast to who He is. Do not deny His name. Hold fast because He is coming. Don't let anything take the crown from you. And then thirdly, Jesus is not only holy, He's not only true. He has the the key of David. And we don't have time to really go into all that is. <clears throat> I think on Sermon Audio we have a Sunday school class where I go into detail about that key. But folks, I do want to remind you that Jesus has already told us in Revelation 1 and verse 18 that He has the keys of death and hell. What does it mean to have the key? It means he has authority, doesn't he? He has authority over death and hell. He has the authority on who he sends there. He has that authority. And folks, when we lie our heads down and our bodies take this its final breath under this fallen, sin-cursed world, we can rest knowing that He has the key of death and hell and that body is coming out of the grave. Because He has that authority, doesn't He? Jesus not only has authority over Hades and death, Matthew 28.18 says He has all authority in heaven and earth. He has the key to everything. There's no key he doesn't have. I used to tease my brother here back when we were at our former building and we would go somewhere and the door would be locked and 
he would be standing there and he'd say, oh, I got a key. And he'd bring out this huge ring. It wasn't quite that big, but it looked that big. I don't know how many keys were on it. There, there literally, I, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating, there must have been 30 keys on there. Because this is what he'd do. He'd go, he'd flip through each key. He's, he's looking for the key. They're not labeled. He's just looking. Click, 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 click. He tried, didn't open the door. Click, 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 click. He tried and opened the door. Well, folks, he had authority over that door, didn't he? I wasn't going in that door unless he what? He opened it. All authority. All authority is not given to scientists. That's what the world thinks. If a scientist says it, it's got to be it's got to be true. All authority is not given to any man in a family. You say where he's the head. It's a delegated authority. All authority is Christ. All authority is not given to any form of human government. Do we understand that? All authority is Him. And if there's a conflict between delegated authority that's being abused and His authority, guess who we submit to? His authority. Folks, He has all authority over death and Hades. He has all authority over heaven and earth and all that is in it. And He has authority <clears throat> over something concerning David. He has the key of David. What is He referring to? Well, <clears throat> we won't look at it for sake of time. But he's referring to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 22, he's referring to a man who had the key of David. This man's name was Eliakim. And there was a man whose name was, I'm not quite sure I remember the name exactly, I think it was Shiva. And he was not the right man to have that key. And God disposes of that man. And he says, I'm going to give the key of David to this man. In other words, Eliakim had authority, right? What did he have authority of within the house of David? He had authority over the royal treasury. He had authority over the royal treasury. How would you like to have that authority? And folks, our Lord not only has all authority in heaven and earth, <coughs> and He has authority over death and Hades, he has authority over the royal treasury. 
an authority that extends to this fashion. If he opens the door to the royal treasury to you, can anybody shut it? No. If he shuts the door to the royal treasury, can anybody open it? No. Folks, not only is Christ the unique one, not only is He the genuine one, He is the true Messiah, but He has authority in His coming reign to open the door into the kingdom of God and to close the door to certain people. The synagogue of Satan was claiming to be the children of the kingdom, right? But they were not. But this weak church, they were the genuine children of the kingdom. And Christ, who had the key of David, He had opened up to them the treasury of the riches of God. And He had closed it to who? The synagogue of Satan. Folks, have you never read the word riches in your Bible? Have you never read this passage that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? You ever read that? The word wealth there is not used casually or haphazardly or I think I chose the wrong word. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is all the wealth of the kingdom. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the what? The life. All the wealth and treasures of eternal life are in Him. And that treasure of the light, of the knowledge, of the glory of God. That's the wealth. That wealth is in us, in earthen vessels. He's given us an understanding. Have you not read, I am the door. If any man enter in, He will find life. An abundant life. Peter would write in 2 Peter of an abundant entrance into the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Folks, when we're talking about the wealth of that regal, of that kingdom, the treasure is Him. 
And the door is Him, isn't it? And the key and the authority to open up that treasure, to open up the door to Him, is possessed by Christ. The entryway into the treasury of the wealth of the knowledge of God through the pages of His words, that entrance is held by Him. And you'll recall in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian, who is fleeing from the city of destruction, he comes up to that gate. You remember this in the book? He comes up to that gate, and what does he do? He knocks, right? And the door what? It opens. And he enters in, and the door shuts. Folks, a lot of people try to get into the kingdom by going over the wall. They're trusting their works. They're trusting their efforts. They're trusting their good deeds. They're trusting that they're not like other people. That's climbing over the wall. You have to go to the one who has the key. And if you would come to him, he would not what? He will not cast you out. If you come by the door. And folks, knocking on the door is not counting on your good deeds, right? Knocking on the door, why are you knocking on it? Because you believe He'll open the door to you. If you knew the door was shut, you wouldn't knock on the door. Folks, Christ has opened the door to His churches. No matter how strong they are, no matter how mature they may be, no matter how much persecution and what the world says about them, they don't have access to the wealth. Who has access to the wealth? His people. And folks, I can honestly say this. That Christ has opened the door <coughs> to His riches to our congregation. And He hasn't shut it. Isn't that a gift? That wealth is not true everywhere. But He's opened that door to us. You say, well, you're just weak. You're just very small. But the door is open. The door is open. Christ has done this for us. 
He has given us an understanding that He is holy. He has given us an understanding that He is true. And He has opened up the treasury of the wealth of His grace to the weak, to the contrite, to the humble, to the nothings of this world, to the nobodies, to the despised. Not to the wealthy, not to the celebrities, not to the people of prominence in this life, but to us. Thanks be to God. And Faith Memorial, hold fast to that. Hold fast to what you know and the understanding that God has given to you in light of a growing dark culture out there. Unto His people, He has opened the door by the Gospel. No raging by government. No wrath by a spouse. No abandonment by a friend can shut what He has opened to His people. And folks, as a pastor, I just want to say this. Would you not, the door is open, would you not avail yourself of that wealth? Would you not open your Bible and engraft that wealth into your soul? Because He's coming quickly. May God give us that grace. Let's pray together.